0: Welcome to Texas Public Radio's storytelling series, Worth Repeating, live from the Carlos and Malu Alvarez Theater in downtown San Antonio. I am your host, Andrea Vocap sanderson Every event has a theme, and tonight's theme is Roots, stories about where you come from, the people you grew up with, and the experiences that made you who you are today. Kicking off tonight's storytelling series is a woman whom I love with all my heart, She is a vivacious blonde poet, slam poet, mother, domestic violence survivor, and a teaching artist. Here goes Mandy Lynn.
1: Hi, I'm Mandy Lynn, and I'm from San Antonio, Texas, but I am originally from Bossier City, Louisiana. And Bossier City is a very small town in North Louisiana that sits right in the heart of Caddo Parish. And Caddo Parish was back in the 80s when I was growing up and still is to this day, one of the most segregated areas in the entire United States, top 10 list. So when I was growing up, I didn't concern myself a lot with race. I went to inner city schools where races were mixed. But when I was about nine years old in 1989, um, I moved to an even smaller town called the Village of Dixian, about 30 miles outside of Bozier City. And if the Village of Dixian sounds country, that's because it was very country. Stay tuned. So, when I moved to Dixian, it was a place that consisted of Three streets, a trailer park, a ballpark, a tin shed they called City Hall, and about five liquor stores because the next parish over was dry. So that's where everybody came to get their liquor. Um, I was even at one one time able to go get liquor and cigarettes on my grandpa's behalf with his card account at the local corner store. So I started third grade when I lived in the village of Dixian. And the only school that I could go to was an all-black school. At that time in 1989, which wasn't that long ago, people um, that did not believe in race mixing were still allowed to take their children out of district. So all the other kids that I lived with in this all-white neighborhood went out of district to another school. The only bus went to this all-black school, JL Jones. And my mom told me that number one, She didn't have transportation to take me out of district. And number two, she thought I could use a little integration in my life. But as I was preparing for that school year, I started hearing all kinds of whispers from adults about what it would be like at an all-black school. My uncle told me stories about being in high school and getting kicked downstairs, getting his arm broken because he was the only white kid in school and he got picked on a lot just for being different. So, when I started my third grade year, the first day of school, I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that I was not prejudiced when I walked through the door. So my dad had this blue jean jacket that had a big old patch of Jimi Hendrix on the back. And If anyone doesn't know Jimi Hendrix, he's, you know, a black rock and roll god, right? So I wore this jacket to school every day for the first week because I wanted everybody to know I came in peace. This ended up to be one of the best school years I've ever had in my life and ah, I still get warm and fuzzy when I think about it uh, I got a lot of love notes I spent every day at recess on the merry-go-round with my friends braiding my hair I was pretty honored towards my teachers because in third grade I got the only white teacher in the whole school and I was really mad about it because I I didn't want people to think they paired me up with her just because we looked the same. I never really got to play with any of my friends outside of school. I don't think I ever asked a whole lot of questions about it at that time. It's just the way it was. So uh, there was one time I was at a fair in downtown Mendon, Louisiana, and I met my friend Raquel, um, who was also in my third grade class, and her and I got to ride a Ferris wheel together. And it was the one and only time I ever remember just hanging out with my friends outside of school, never asked questions, um, never really knew or not whether it was related to race. It just was what it was. So after that school year, I moved to San Antonio. So I went straight from, you know, the bayous of Louisiana to the south side of San Antonio, Texas, which was its own culture shock. But... I came back to spend summers in Louisiana. And when I was about 15 years old, I came to spend the summer and the first black family that had ever moved in and actually stayed came to town. Before that, any other family that I had ever seen move in had been kicked out within the first couple of months. Not kicked out, driven out um, by people just vandalizing property, um, saying ugly things that that would make you not want to stick around or feel like home. So this little boy, um, Anderson, 15 years old, um, he moved in, and I don't know what it was that... I like so much about him. I mean, he was a good looking kid. He was an athlete, but he was also really intelligent and could do these killer backhand springs off the swings. So we would spend all of our days during that summer riding bikes together, um, lifting weights together, just having really actually an innocent good time until the neighbors started talking. And I remember riding bikes down the street with him. And there was these biker dudes that had a pit bull in a front yard that was all dirt. And they were the ones who who really pushed to um to start calling me an N lover every time we rode bikes down the street. And I had heard the N word uh all of my life, but I never really gave any thought to its impact until that moment when that word was being used against my friend and I. As time went on, I guess um. Innocence turned into a little bit of heart flutters. And one day this little boy in the neighborhood came walking to my house, uh, knocked on my door with a Walmart ad, and asked me to pick out a ring from this Walmart ad. Said he wanted to buy his girlfriend a ring. The next day, Anderson showed up with this ring. Um, It was a heart-shaped ring, had some little diamond chips. I know that he had worked hard and spent his money on it. So of course I accepted the ring and I put it on and and I realized I was starting to feel a little warm and fuzzy inside and I was really proud and I went home to show my grandmother this ring and my grandmother took one look at it and said, give it back. I didn't understand why she was so upset about it. At first I really thought it was because he was a boy, right? And then she told me it was because he was black. And I accused my grandmother of being prejudiced and she said, Mandy Lynn, I'm not prejudiced, but what would the neighbors think? (laughs) Yeah, what would the neighbors think? So what she did, she made me give the ring back. The little boy was devastated. And she really encouraged me to start hanging around with these girls in the neighborhood. which she didn't know at the time was that my relationship was, with Anderson was really innocent, but these little girls in the neighborhood were already smoking, already drinking, um, doing doing real grown folk stuff. So I'm hanging out with these girls, starting to get into a little bit of trouble. And one day, Anderson comes and knocks on my friend's door, and they're giggling on the inside as I walk outside, and he's standing at the end of the sidewalk with leaves in his hand, tearing up leaves, staring down at his hands. He couldn't even look me in the eyes. And he asked me if I wanted to go ride bikes with him. And I said, no, I'm hanging out with my friends. And he turned around and walked away. And that was the last time I saw him until I was an adult. So from the time I was 15 until I was about 21 years old when I saw him again, I had these dreams about going back and making amends, about what would have happened if I would have just got on my bike and rode away with him. You know, where would we be now? And I really, really wanted to go back and apologize to him because as I grew up, I realized that there was so much wrong in what happened from every angle. And while I was a product of, you know, the place that I came from, I had some decisions to make and I made a bad one. So I ran into him, and I gave him this long, heartfelt apology and the great big hug I wanted to, and he didn't accept my apology. And it was that time that I realized that just because you want to apologize and make things right does not mean that anybody else has a responsibility to accept your apology. And that's one of the lessons that I take with me everywhere I go. My name's Mandy Lynn, and those are my roots.
0: Our next storyteller is so brave and has inspired me as he's gone through his journey because I've been watching. Larry Garza has been a comedian for over 15 years. He is a founding member of the award-winning group Comedia A and a fun- Funniest in South Texas winner, and the Funniest in Texas, and World Series of Comedy finalist. Larry was diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer and has undergone multiple surgeries after his condition spread. He returns to comedy with an attitude of die laughing.
2: Hello, everyone. My name's uh, Larry Garza, here to tell you a story about my roots. There's a lot of questions that come with that. What are roots? When do roots begin? Do roots begin from you and your personal story? Do roots begin from your families, or is it from when your ancestors were cultivated from the forcible devils that made your culture our culture? Hi, I'm Larry Garza, stand-up comedian. Been doing stand-up comedy since the early 2000s. And I'm here to tell you the story about a pissed off white guy uh, in the last show I did before the pandemic. Now, this happened, I say, around February, while everything was happening with COVID in a little town called Divine, Texas. So as you can tell, my career was skyrocketing in the stand-up comedy world. I uh, performed in... uh, like a privately owned texas roadhouse like uh, it was a, it was a small st- hooters meets steakhouse you know sort of uh, situation and i uh was paid up front which was great and it included a dinner and i didn't want to be rude so i ordered chicken wings at a steakhouse as opposed to being a dick and getting a giant porterhouse and being you know that guy I brought uh, openers with me. Uh, my friend Christopher Breckel, who uh, can be best described as an intellectual comedian uh, that looks like an alt-right accountant. <laughs> and uh, Freddie Trevino. Freddie uh, is uh, best described, I'd say, as a handicapped cholo. Now, I know that sounds rude, uh, but that's not a bit, that's not an act. He has like a spinal disease and totally Mexican, khaki from head to toe. He basically looks like if somebody put a gardener in a taffy puller. So that was my opening acts. We were having a good time. The seating situation was very not unique for bar shows. Right in front of the stage, it was set up like a wedding ceremony, and in the back was high tops. So it was basically the mullet of table arrangements. It was business in the front, party in the back, And like most uh, subconscious audience, they decided to all sit in the high tops. So there is a big barrier of empty seats between us and the 30 odd people that showed up at this Shoney's Hooters restaurant. Um, The show was going well. Chris did good. Freddie did good. I go on stage and I start with my stereotypical Mexican humor. I'm making fun of Freddie and 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 how twisted this prince is. I'm um, making fun of Chris I'm giving the audience what they love the Mexican stereotype jealous Latino wife material I talk about my cancer and compare it to selling fruit on the side of the road but things got a little bit more interesting when I started talking about Texas history I don't know exactly what I said but it's a bit that I've done Quite often, really pissed off Foghorn Leghorn. I started to talk about the origins of the Mexican people. And while I did that, Foghorn and Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam got up and they had it and they were leaving, but they didn't make a commotion, they were just leaving. And me trying to save the 10% of the audience that was leaving, I asked them why where they were going, what I could do for them to stay. Foghorn turns around and says, I'm tired of going to comedy shows and having to deal with politics. Now, I didn't know that this steakhouse was the beacon for political humor in Divine Texas, but apparently it was, and Foghorn wasn't taking it. Essentially, what I had said on stage that set him off so bad was this. I go on stage and I talk about how to deal with racist white people on the internet. I started to talk about the time when this man came up to me and he said, I ain't racist or anything, but, and we all know, any sane human being would know, anytime you hear someone say, I'm not racist or anything, It's going to be followed by something very, very racist. He said, I ain't racist or anything, but I think you people should go back where you came from. To which I responded, Seguin? And apologetically, that man said, no, 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 no. I don't mean where you came from. I mean where your ancestors came from. And I went, oh, you mean Seguin? Because we never left. We just stayed in this again area while different uh, cultures tried to take over the land that we know now as Texas, but was always just land to us. We stood around and our eyes, eye color changes and our skin tone lightened. We started off as indigenous people, and then Spaniards came. And Spaniards are from what continent? Europe. Who lives in Europe? White people. So these white people came and turned my great 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 grandma Zochi Nahualate into Olivia Rodriguez. And then she started to speak Spanish. Spanish wasn't our native tongue, but we were forced Spanish just like those Spaniards forced themselves on Zochi, creating an entire race of mestizos. But we didn't just lay down and take it, we created an entire culture, and became the Republic of Mexico and built this empire strong and proud as much as we could until these other Europeans came over seeking religious asylum. Can you imagine that? People c- coming over because the country that they lived in sucked? But these, these white people had bluer eyes. We know the story, right? It was the Alamo at Sam Houston and David Bowie and Stone Cold Steve Austin, I didn't pay (laughs) that close attention, but I just said, look, let's not blame people for speaking Spanish in a country that's made of immigrants. And Foghorn wasn't having me do that. Foghorn wasn't going to sit there and let some wetback use a Texas rattlesnake's name in vain. He was pissed. He was upset. And he let me know. And he aggressively stood there. And there was people that tried to stop him. And it was an awkward situation. Not the first time I've ever dealt with a heckler, let alone someone running up to the stage. But if I can dish it out, I could take it. So I told him, let him let him speak. He says, I'm tired of white people being persecuted. Every time I go to a comedy show, white people are being made fun of. Why is it okay for you to use the term white devil? Which I never did. I guess it was the white guilt inside of him. The white devil. Why could I use a term like the white devil? But yet he couldn't use any racial slurs. I said, you can use all the racial slurs you want, dude. Who's stopping you? And then a woman, my white knight, said, I don't mind it if he calls us white devils. Just sit down and enjoy the show. He says, you need to have more dignity than that. And I said, look, I just have one question for you. Obviously, you were deeply offended from the racial stereotypes of white people that I put out. But you were totally okay for me ragging on a handicapped man for the first 10 minutes of my set. Is that correct? And he goes, you don't understand. I'm more Mexican than you are. I go, go, how is that? He goes, I'm married a Mexican and my wife, wait, (laughs) I'm married a Mexican and my kids are half Mexican. And I go, oh, well, that's exactly what happened to my great-great-grandma Zochi." I got more of a gasp than a laugh. Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd had to grab Foghorn and lead him out of the Looney Tune that we created. And my show started just like it began, awkwardly. But I asked myself a lot if I would have done things differently, knowing that that was the last show that I would ever do before the pandemic, the last live show that I would ever headline. I may have let well enough alone Should have just let him walk away, and I definitely would have ordered a porterhouse steak.
0: This next gentleman that's going to tell his story is stepping from behind the scenes into the spotlight tonight, and I'm really excited to hear his story. He's personally... Help me walk through this journey as a host here at TPR. Ben Henry is a journalist and a podcast producer for Texas Public Radio, and that's all he gave me to say. <laughs> Welcome, Ben Henry.
3: Hey everybody! Uh, thanks for watching the show tonight. So, um, I grew up in a little town called Wasilla, Alaska, which is. By Alaskan standards, a pretty nice, well-developed town, and it's not that cold. By any other standards, it is out in the middle of nowhere, and the cold is a reminder of God's indifference to us. So I say that I, I, I grew up there. Uh, I'm not really from there, though. I, uh, so my, when I was growing up, my dad was an airline pilot, so we moved a lot. We moved uh, about four times, and. One of the consequences of, of moving a lot is that you don't have a lot of uh, constant role models, uh, not a lot of adults who are kind of around throughout your whole uh, upbringing. So uh, my, my parents were not really available as role models. Um, my dad wasn't there very much because of, of his job and I wasn't really close to my mom during this time. So by the time we moved to Alaska, when I was around nine years old, I didn't know it, but at, at, at the time I was I was in search of, of some kind of role model. And so in, in absence of either of my parents, there, there was really one person who I could potentially turn to as a role model. And uh, that was my coach. Now, when uh, when we moved to Alaska, I started doing gymnastics, which is an unusual sport that attracts unusual people. My first coach was a middle-aged woman who didn't really like me for reasons that were never clear to me. Uh, she wasn't the kind of coach who had favorites, but she had least favorites, and, uh, and I was one of the least favorites. Yeah. And uh, you know, none of us really liked her, uh, and unsurprisingly, uh, she, uh, you know, she didn't last very long in that, in that job. Uh, she, she took a really punitive approach to coaching. Uh, so, you know, when we did something wrong, uh, she, she would have us do push ups or sit ups or something like that. So she wasn't popular. Um, and uh, pretty soon we, we didn't have a coach again. Uh, and, and so she became uh, the first of a pretty long line of people who tried to teach us gymnastics for a couple months and then gave up after getting to know us and and that was fair we were we were an unruly bunch of young boys you know we at, at that age we were learning new swear words every couple of weeks uh we uh, we loved obscene jokes uh, especially the ones that we didn't really understand so you know it, to their credit this was a difficult job to step in and be a role model for these kids um so our the next coach we had uh, was this big guy with a big full beard, and he approached gymnastics as an opportunity to impart biblical lessons upon us. He was very religious, and I can remember like one time struggling to do something, and he took me aside and we had a very sincere kind of one on one sermon and uh you know his, his teach we were not receptive to his teachings it was it was i don't think he understood how far gone we already were, and that we you know <laughs> But he was very well, very well intentioned. But, you know, it's got to be said, this was not an effective way of coaching. We were not very good at gymnastics. Uh, we, we had a rival gym a couple towns over, and every competition we went to, we lost. And I, uh, I collected a lot of those multicolor participation ribbons that you get uh, to the point that I started throwing them out because when you have one, you have all of them. So uh, we, we weren't doing great. Um, after a little while he he left as well and then finally we we had a serious coach we had someone who had done this before someone who had actually coached gymnasts who had been successful and had gone to national competitions and won national medals um this was someone with a certain amount of prestige this was a guy his name was jay he was uh, he, he was in his forties, I think. He himself had been a gymnast, and so he had the kind of dense and sinewy body of a gymnast. He always had stubble on his face, and he smelled like cigarettes. And he was uh, he was a, a demanding coach, um, but a good coach. We uh, when when he was our coach, we you know there were a couple of really naturally talented boys on the team, and they flourished under him. Uh, they started to do really well. We all started to do better, and uh, suddenly we you know he started talking about nationals you know and and going to these bigger competitions and doing well and that was new to us that was very exciting you know before regional competitions were not even even really on the menu but now you know there was now a, a level of prestige you know that we were at least aspiring to um, and uh, we liked him he was funny he you know he joked with us I think there's maybe two or three times where he told a dirty joke mm-hmm. And that's all it took, you know. He was he was in with us after that. You know, he he was speaking our language. You, you know, we um we liked him and he was passionate. It, it was it was obvious that he cared. Um even, you know, for me, I can remember, you know, I I was one of the the not as talented kids on this team. Uh but I could tell he he spent time trying to figure out, you know, what I needed to work on and how I could improve and he he wanted me to do better. And um, and and that meant uh, that meant a lot to me. He uh, he did he he came to us under uh, somewhat mysterious circumstances because uh, he, he he wasn't from Alaska. He moved there to coach us, and there was a bit of a question hanging in the air as to, to why he left his previous team, uh, and and I you know I I never really uh, found out. Um, but uh, so so he was a good coach, and we liked him. Uh, he was however volatile and every once in a while we would see that he would get angry or frustrated when things weren't going well and uh i can remember really distinctly his face getting really red and his veins kind of bulging out um he uh some days he uh he, he would be really cold and, and distant he he would show up to practice he would show up late and he would give us like one or two you know directions and then he would leave he'd go outside and smoke and walk around and we, you know, we wouldn't see him uh and uh you know that was uh that, that was that was difficult behavior to make sense of that was strange you know um he we were kids we were not very good at interpreting the emotions of adults and, and he was hard to pin down um and, and I think over time that, that, that kind of put us on edge around him. And the reality was that we were never quite as good at gymnastics as he wanted us to be. You know, um, I can remember every once in a while, I would have a really good competition where I would go and I would perform my routines better than I did in practice. And I could see the excitement on his face. You know he was a different person i mean in those in those competitions that you know that's what he lived for. I could see kind of he he would just come alive when when I was doing really well and you know you could sense this feeling I mean he, he saw potential in me and um the re- as it happened, you know I would always I, I would never continue that upward trajectory. I would kind of slide back down and you know that's that's how I was as, as a gymnast and i could I could feel that he was disappointed in me uh and you know as the years went on as a team we never really achieved the kind of national acclaim that that he wanted us to achieve and i think that um that early optimism that he brought with him when he when he started coaching us dwindled over the years one time we were uh, traveling to a competition uh, a little ways away. We're all staying in a hotel together. It's very exciting. And we showed up on the first day of this competition and he wasn't there. And the parents were all kind of scurrying around like, where is Coach Jay? What's going on? And he never showed up. And uh, I don't really remember how it went, but I, I think uh, there, there, an assistant coach kind of stepped in. Some of the parents helped out and, and we just did the competition without him. And, uh, and then we, and, and we went home. And... Uh, a couple of days later, I was in the backseat of my friend's car. I think we were driving home from practice and his mom was driving and we were asking her, do you know what happened to coach Jay? What's going on? We, you know, we were at the age where we've uh, begun to uh, learn how to gossip. We, that's, you know, this is what we like to do. Um, and she said, uh, she did know what happened and that, and that something had happened. And she told me that I had to go home and ask my mom what happened which I don't think I did. I, I think I, I asked my friend what happened. And uh, he told me that, his mom had told him, that Coach J had died and that it was a suicide. And we found out some time later that he had gotten drunk and he had a gun and and the police had been called and the police killed him. So this was difficult information to take in. We didn't really talk about it as a group uh, or with the adults in the gym. I think there was one time the owner of the gym kind of gathered us all together and said something about it, but that was it. We, you know, um, we, uh, as a group of kids, you know, normally when something scandalous would have happened, you know we were all over it we were poking and prodding and trying to find out more especially if there was a sense that the adults didn't want us to know more about it but this was different this was a different kind of mystery and uh, this was not supposed to have happened and we just didn't I, I think perhaps there was nothing for us to say about it and so we never talked about it and so instead I was kind of left on my own with this memory of a guy who was disappointed in me and that disappointment in some way contributed to his unhappiness and his unhappiness I thought had something to do with his death. And that was a very powerful idea, that was an idea that stuck with me and I carried around a. a A guilt. Uh, I don't think I I really understood it at at the time, Uh, uh, but I did, and uh, that guilt never really went away. Like everyone else, eventually I uh, submerged it and moved on. So that is what Wasilla, Alaska is like, if any of you are thinking of moving there. Uh, Thank you for listening.
0: So our final storyteller tonight, it's interesting because this year I have introduced her more times than all of the years I've known her combined. Uh, She has, I'm going to step on a limb and say, and y'all can fight me about it, we wouldn't have a flourishing indie music scene without her help because she has been an amazing force organizing here for years. And that's not in the bio, I'm telling you. Anyways, on to the bio. Libby Day is Director of Communications for the San Antonio Parks Foundation and has called San Antonio home since 2008. Welcome to the stage, Libby Day.
4: So something that a lot of people don't know about me is that I'm a horse girl. I always have been and it has impacted my life to a great extent. I grew up I was born in Enumclaw, Washington, which is a small farm town uh, in Washington State, to a father who's an equine veterinarian and a mother who was a horse trainer at the time. And when I was in first grade, we moved to Phoenix for my dad's work. And at that time, we kind of lived in the city, you know, we took riding lessons, We, we had a horse or a pony, her name was Dazzle. She was very cute. I still think of her to this day. And um, when I was in fifth grade, we moved out into unincorporated Maricopa County. And um, at that time, I became friends with uh, a girl named Courtney, who I met in class, and somehow came across the information that she also lived in the middle of nowhere. So unincorporated Maricopa County is in the far Northeast Valley, and at that time, there really wasn't anything out there. There was some, you know, some ranches, Uh, There was no city water, there was a volunteer fire department, and um, if you lived out there, it's because you didn't really want to be around anybody else. And (laughs) one of the things that we used to do, Courtney and I, is we would go chase cows. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, We would get on our horses, we would go meet up in some arbitrary location, meet me at the corner of 148th Street in Dixaleta and we would go look for cows because at that time uh, individuals had arrangements with the county where they could let free-range cattle graze out on county land. And so that was how we entertained ourselves more often than not. And um, those experiences, now that I think back on them were absolutely wild. Uh, Our parents kind of just let us go get on the horses, bareback, saddle, whatever you felt like that day I didn't have a cell phone, maybe I was 11, 12. Um, and basically the goal was don't get lost, find some cows, don't fall in a cactus, and come home before it's dark, otherwise you're gonna be in a, a lot of trouble when you finally get there. And so that kind of evolved as I got older. My dad, uh, he's an equine veterinarian, so he only works on horses. And he worked on racehorses at the time. So in Phoenix, it's too hot for the horses to race in the summer. So we would go up to northern Arizona um, and he would work up there. My sister, my mom, and I would all go up there with him. And um, we lived in a uh, little trailer home uh, during the summer. And there happened to be a ranch down the road called Horsebreakers Unlimited. And I wanted. To do something besides sit around at home and help my mom with whatever she needed help with because for those of you who know when you're a 13-year-old girl you're not really the most helpful person around Um, and I was determined to continue in that vein for a few years so uh, she drove me down the road took me to horse breakers and said you know my daughter wants to ride horses for you and uh, Horsebreakers Unlimited is an auction ranch, and so their business model is they buy horses or people give them horses, they come upon horses, uh, they feed them, fatten them up, you, they put some riders on them for a few months, and at the end of the summer, you ride these horses through an auction ring. And hopefully they sell, hopefully they sell for a lot more money than they were originally <laughs> purchased for. So I remember my first time going down there, they stuck me on a horse and said, all right, ride around, let's see you ride and apparently I did okay because from that day forward, uh, every summer for the next three years, my mom dropped me off at six o'clock in the morning and I rode the horses that I was assigned to ride and they ranged anywhere from, you know, short, stocky, 14-hand, buckskin horses to tall, gangly horses with bad confirmations that you you weren't really expecting to sell for a whole lot of money, but that was the job ride the horses, make them look good, do it safely with very little training and very little supervision. Um, So I had a friend named Megan, and um, I hope she's doing well if you're out there in the universe, Megan. Haven't talked to her for many, many years um, because the work that I do now is very different than the work that I did then. Um, But uh, I had some close calls working at horse breakers, a few um, concussions, and uh, outside of that I really got by unscathed and my love for working as a professional writer grew and when I would go back to Phoenix during um, the times where it was not hundred and twenty degrees uh, I ended up working for a training barn there for a guy named Steve Wolf and Steve is a wonderful person but he is he's a crusty old man who lived on cigarettes and coffee and um, it was a lot of the same, to be honest, it was here's the horses you're going to ride and you know, ride them every day, you get out of school, you come to the barn, you ride, maybe he's there, maybe he's not, there might be a client there because a training barn means that people who own these horses are paying the trainer to ride and train them either to show or to sell. Whatever their interest may be, my job was to exercise the horses and make sure that they were ready to train when Steve got on them. So I did that um, until the day I moved to Texas actually. Um, uh, From the day I could walk until the day I moved to Texas, I rode horses and I got paid to do it and it's actually one of the largest ironies of my life that I now live in Texas and don't ride horses and don't have anything to do with the equestrian profession. but it is something that impacted me greatly, and it really taught me a lot about having the mental fortitude and you know the self-determination, the self-motivation, the grit and integrity to do what you know you're supposed to do and do it to the best of your ability and keep you know the people around you safe, keep yourself safe. Um, that's something that I've used quite a bit in the DIY music scene. Um, you know DIY shows, warehouse parties, festivals, all kinds of stuff. If you say you're gonna do something you do it and if you know that you could have done it better you work to do it better. You try harder, you do better and um, you know that is is really something that I've carried with me my whole life and I don't think that I would have that same lens and that same perspective when it comes to challenges and opportunities without all of those years of running through the desert and trying not to fall on cactus or get concussions or run into trees or, you know, whatever it may be. And so, um, ultimately, you know, I carry all of that with me now. And some days I think about, you know, my plan B is get a, Get a big truck and a trailer, and I'll haul horses. If everything that I'm doing now uh, kind of goes down the drain, but um, all of those, all of those skills and 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 things that being a part of, you know, an equestrian family, that's what I carry with me today, and it's helped me, you know, build a a lot of you know the community that I love and. I, that's that's kind of my story. I've never gotten a. I've never had the opportunity to tell it before. So thank you for listening. I don't think there's a lot of people here in San Antonio that know that I grew up as a horse girl. So you have your your may now, um, but yeah, do better, try harder. That's what it's all about.
0: So I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Texas Public Radio's Worth Repeating in collaboration with the 8020 Foundation. For our December show, On The Clock, we're looking for all kinds of stories about work. Do you have a story to tell from your best or worst or weirdest job? I got some. A sticky situation with a boss or a coworker, a laughable experience with a customer or client, a work trip gone wrong, they can go really bad. A tale of triumph, we want to hear it, so bring it on. Most participants have never told a story in front of an audience before, and that's okay. Our team is here to help you through it, and they're going to walk you through it every step of the way, so don't worry, just bring your story. Learn more about the series and submit your stories at tpr.org wr. From all of us here at Texas Public Radio, have a great night. Be safe.